If you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Ephesians 6, we're back there again. Moving on in our armor, we'll begin reading in verse 10. Once again, we read, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God." Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, and for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So, there was an ancient Chinese warrior, his name was Sun Tzu, and he wrote a book that's fairly famous, I guess. Mr. Rudy would probably know, The Art of War. He's shaking his head, yes. And one of the things he said in that was that you need to know your enemy before you go into battle. He says, for if you know your enemy and know yourself, you don't need to fear the results of the battle. It'll be good. But he went on further to say, if you do not know yourself and you do not know the enemy, the battle will be lost. And so there's a little bit of wisdom there in that ancient Chinese warrior so if we know who we are in Christ, and if we are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and if we know who our enemy is, that he was disarmed, as we've already taught, at the cross, but yet he is still powerful, then we can defeat him every time if we know that. But if we do not understand our enemy, if we underestimate his intentions or his power, or we think him to be weak, some people, they act like the devil doesn't even exist or just ignore him, if we don't know our enemy or act like we don't know our enemy, we are in grave danger. And I'm seriously saying that. Spiritually grave danger. Because we are in a life and death battle every day we wake up. And honestly, sometimes we forget that, don't we? You know, you climb out of bed, you just start thinking about your plans, how you're going to get things done, your job, taking care of the kids, cleaning, cooking. You got a soccer game that night, and next thing you know, you get through a day and you realize, man, I never prayed, never read my Bible, never really gave the Lord much time at all, let alone the fact that I should have had my armor on and didn't bother doing that. And you get through a day. But I'll tell you what, guess who didn't forget? Guess who was still planning attacks? Guess who is still warring against your soul every day and he doesn't get discouraged? Every day he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy us without fail. And I would say, can we afford to forget or ignore him? So I would say, do we know our enemy? So we're looking at verse 16 today. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench 
the fiery darts of the wicked. And what is the purpose of the shield of faith? To quench all the fiery darts of whom? What does it say? Of the wicked. The thing is, we are not fighting a principle of wickedness or evil, and I've said this before, but a real personal being. So the King James should read the fiery darts of the wicked one. That's the enemy that our ancient Chinese warrior would say we should understand. We need to understand him. And that word for wicked is panaros, and it means wicked, evil, base, bad, vicious, and malicious. That's the one who is daily after us. So let that sink in. We fight the wicked one. We fight the vicious one. We fight the malicious one. So evil only exists in the world because of evil beings. Evil people are evil because there are evil personalities called the devil and demons. So evil doesn't exist as like a principle just floating around like a gas that if somebody breathes it, they become evil. You're affected. It only exists because of evil beings. So Ephesians 2.2 says the devil is the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. And that word for works is where we get our word energize. He energizes the children of disobedience. He's the one that is energizing sinners like an ever-ready battery. And Jesus told the Jews in John 8, you are of your father the devil and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he went on to say he is a liar and the father of it or of them. So we know from the Bible, I don't want to have to go through all the scriptures to prove that. We just went through some. But the devil is the source of all murder, lust, lying, pride. He's the source of all sin. And his nature is seen in sinners from birth. And he continues, as we just read in Ephesians 2, 2, to energize them, to work in them on a daily basis. We've already quoted 1 John 5, all the world lies in the bosom or in the wicked one. So listen, what we need to understand about our enemy is this supernatural being called the devil has no goodness in him. He's the source of all evil in the world. So you take one event. What is the source of the Holocaust? unspeakable atrocities done by people to other people. Who's the source of all that? The one that was a murderer from the beginning, the devil, the wicked one. And we have to understand that the one who is after our souls in here on a daily basis is filled with hatred, viciousness, malice, and purely evil intentions towards us. Every day, he's coming after us. So when you combine his pure hatred for us as God's people and his unbelievable cunning and craftiness, which we talked about that, it's in verse 11, the wiles of the devil, unbelievable craftiness. He's wiser than all of us put together. Everyone in this world, he has more wisdom, insight, knowledge, whatever you want to say, wiles, schemes, craftiness. Then combine those two together, his hatred and his wiles and schemes. How can we go forth any day without putting on our spiritual armor? 
In a sense, it's almost spiritual suicide, except the grace of God sometimes watches over us, doesn't he? Even when we haven't done our part. But listen, these arrows that we talk about here, the fiery darts, those arrows that are flying at us, they are not toy arrows. Like the ones you see that have the little plungers on the end, the little rubber stoppers so they can stick on your refrigerator. No, they're not like that at all. These arrows are powerful, carefully crafted schemes and wiles that they are designed to burn our faith to the ground. And if they're not st stopped or quenched, they will destroy us. So the point is, the source of these fiery arrows that we're going to talk about is an enemy that has pure hatred force, and every arrow he shoots our way has a purpose, a scheme behind it, wiles behind it. And those arrows are not flying unintentionally at us. They have a deadly purpose and intention. So as it says in the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one of the verses says, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. So our ancient foe, as the song says, he seeks to work us woe. And how does he do that? His craft and power are great and he's armed with cruel hate. And how is he armed? With these fiery darts or arrows and they're constructed, these arrows, of the devil's craft and might and power. That's what they're made out of, right? And without the armor of God, we're sunk because, as the song says, on earth are none his equal. And that's why we need God's armor, because without it, we are defenseless against him. So how would an Ephesian Christian... How would they have understood this verse 16 where it talks about the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one? How did that shield work for a Roman soldier? So in the ancient world when they would have wars, enemies would often shoot arrows that had pitch placed on the tip. And it was fl a flammable material and they would set it on fire. And they would shoot those arrows at him, and they would rain down on unsuspecting armies, and they would inflict serious wounds. And when the arrows would hit, they would pierce the victim. That pitch would sometimes splatter, and burns would be caused, caused a serious wound. Or if they had wooden shields, if they hit that wooden shield, sometimes those shields would get set on fire. The soldiers would panic and drop the shields, which would just leave them open to other arrows that were coming flying at them. They had to keep hold of those shields. So the best prepared soldiers, they carried shields that were covered with leather. And that leather, they would either soak it in water or in oil prior to the battle. So that when those fiery darts hit that shield, it would quench them. That's what would happen. So there were two shields that were used back then. And there are two Greek words for these shields. And one was just a smaller round shield that looked like an oversized frisbee. And you could easily carry that in your arm and move around like that. But it didn't cover your whole body. The other shield, which is the one Paul talks about here, the word he uses here in Ephesians, was a large shield. So on 5'9", I guess it would be about that tall. It was four feet by two and a half feet. Now, they know those people back then were a lot shorter than people are now because you think four feet by two and a half feet. I'm like seven foot two. I couldn't fit behind that thing. 
Well, the people back then were a lot shorter, and they could fit behind them. And those soldiers, when they see those arrows come flying, they'd kneel behind those shields and tilt them, and their entire body would be covered. It would give them protection. So when those arrows would hit those shields because of the oil and water, the arrows would then just burn out. So it was extremely important for the survival of an army to have these shields when they would just send a barrage of those arrows coming. And you had to have those shields or you'd just be in, have heavy casualties inflicted at the time. And sometimes it's said that the Roman legionnaires would close ranks with those shields and they'd get them edge to edge across the front. And the ones behind would put them up over their heads. And they said it basically became an impenetrable barrier to arrows, rocks, or spears when they were fighting. Paul is not really interested in giving us a lesson in military strategy, is he really? So he's trying to make spiritual applications to help us in our real warfare that we're having here with the devil. So let's talk about these fiery darts. What are these fiery darts or arrows that the evil one is hurling at us? What are they? Primarily, I think they come as thoughts, unsought thoughts of doubt, disobedience, lust, unforgiveness, fear, malice, and anger. And you could add on other things that come to your mind that want to cause you to sin. Or they can be accusations of things you did in the past that come at you. They're trying to produce guilt, unworthiness, and depression. But also, I think these fiery darts can be persecution. They also could be false teaching, seducing spirits that come at us. But each one of these darts that is heading your way, if you could grab it and look at it, it's got your name written on it. It's personally addressed and sent to you. Airmail coming your way, right? Because the devil knows you. He knows me. He knows what sets you off. He knows what your weaknesses are. And he knows where he's had success in the past. So he's highly intelligent, as we said, and he keeps really good records. And what's so insidious or subtle about these thoughts, these fiery darts, is the devil tries to persuade us that they originate with us, that they're our own thinking process. That's how thoughts come, aren't, aren't they? And you think it's you, and you think, well, man, I must be evil to be thinking that. And it's the devil has fired a dart in your mind. I was thinking, I haven't had this recently, but have you ever had just all of a sudden, you're driving down the road, and these blasphemous thoughts about God will come in your mind. I had that happen a lot to me when I was recently saved. That was a fight I had, constantly having to fight those fiery I'm thinking, I don't think that about God. Where did this come from? And you've got a battle that goes on there, right? You've got to resist them. If you didn't ask for that thought, you abhor this thought that's come into your mind, it's from the devil. You need to recognize that. Resist them. Don't feel guilty about that. It's not your thoughts Amen. unless you choose to keep them and meditate on them. And as I had a brother in church here a while back in a church, should I say, he was driving out of town and he had this thought come from nowhere. It's late. Spend the night in a casino. <laughs> and he's thinking to himself, where did that thought come from? But he said it was a real temptation that he had to fight. Those thoughts are powerful. Those temptations, they're real. And you think it's this thought you had, and the thought came unsought, came from nowhere. And we'll say that. Sometimes don't you say, well, this thought suddenly occurred to me. That's an expression we'll use. Well, where did that thought come from? Is God in casinos? 
So, I mean, some people, they get a thought in their head and it sounds religious and they think they have to run with it right away. And you need to ask yourself, wait a minute, what's this thought trying to get me to do? Is God really in this thought? Or I'll say one thing, anytime a thought comes and it's like you've got to do something right now, it generally isn't the Lord just pushing you to do. That's usually a religious spirit. You've got to be careful of that. So the devil sends a dart flying on at your head with your name on it, and if your shield's lying on the ground, when he sees that one dart hit an unprotected saint, he'll send a barrage of fiery darts afterward. And next thing you know, you're severely wounded and burned. Works like this, so you have one thought of unforgiveness hits you, and you meditate on it, and it begins to burn into resentment. Oh, then he throws another one at you, and it hits you, and a wound gets worse. And the resentment goes from resentment to deep-seated hatred and animosity towards someone. And those thoughts become embedded, and you keep turning them over, letting them smolder. You keep turning them over and over in your heart. And you know what happens then? You see that person that you've been thinking about like that for all week long. And most of the things that you're thinking about them probably aren't even true. But you've been thinking about him, and then when you see him, you can't help but have ill feelings towards them. And people can tell because you let those fiery darts smolder and burn and didn't quench them with the shield of faith. Because a man said this years back, a faith preacher up in Columbus when we got saved said this. I've never forgotten it, and it's good advice. He says, criticism makes you cool to people, and that's true. Have you ever had someone that you just know they like you and all that, but all of a sudden now they're walking the other way and they aren't talking to you and there's a coolness there. You can tell. And you know what you know then? Whatever you're thinking, it hadn't been good thoughts towards me. And that's true. That's the way that works. Or another case, you're trusting God for a financial need and you pray and you commit it all to God. And then on a hill far away, the devil lets fly a fiery arrow. And it's got your name on it, and it hits you. And here comes that thought. If you don't pay that bill, you won't have a place to live. And it burns for a while, and you're thinking about that. Then the next thought comes. What about my wife and kids? Where are they going to live? Are they going to live in the back seat of a car? A homeless shelter? The mother-in-law's? And it just keeps growing. And, and all of a sudden, this faith you had, you committed to the Lord, it's burnt to the ground. So instead of raising your shield of faith to trust God and his faithfulness, all you can think is that you need to get some help somewhere or you're going to end up on skid row. And that's how that works. Shoots those arrows of doubt in there. Projects what's going to happen. And it generally never does, does it? Or you're a young man that isn't married or an older man that is married. And you let your shield stand in the corner one day, and here comes this flaming arrow of lust, and it finds its mark. And you let it burn, and you're meditating on that image that's presented to you. And you're not resisting it. You're not getting it rid of, out of your mind. And another flaming arrow comes after that and tells you, hey, you need to do something about that. These feelings and emotions that that image you've let sit, you got to do something about that. You're only human. And you let those thoughts and images keep coming in and burning and going over in your heart and you're not resisting them like you've been taught to do here. Hang around and burn and then lust becomes the unquenchable passion of your soul. He's got you. So if you would 
put something there in Ephesians 6 and turn back to Proverbs 6. I do want to look at this to see this is how this works. Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 20. Look what it says. My son, keep thy father's commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually upon thine heart and tie them about thy neck. And when you go, it shall lead thee. And when you sleep, it shall keep thee. And when you awake, it shall talk with thee in a good way. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light. And reproofs of instruction are the way of life. To keep thee, so these good thoughts from the Lord that you're supposed to be thinking of, they will keep you, verse 24, from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. And what does it say in verse 25, young men? Lust not after her beauty where? In thine heart. That's where those arrows are coming flying in. He says, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? And the answer is no. You can't take that lust in your heart. You can't take those thoughts and let them stay in your mind and in your heart and not be burned. And look over in chapter 7 of Proverbs, beginning in verse 6. He says, For at the window of my house I looked through my casement, and behold, among the simple ones I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding. And let me just say, Proverbs is written like wisdom that an older man is given to his son. That's the tone of Proverbs. It's like, son, sit down here by the fire. I want to talk to you about a few things in life. I want you to learn some things so you don't have to go through what I went through. I give you a little wisdom to get you through. That's what it's, it's all about. So he says, verse 7, I beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding. Verse 8, passing through the street near her corner, he went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot, subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now she is without, now in the streets, and lies in wait at every corner. So she catches him and kisses him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. She's religious. Hmm. Therefore came I forth to meet thee diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works with the fine linen of Egypt. I perfume my bed with myrrh, alloys, and cinnamon. Oh, come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with the loves, for the good man is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. The Lord will forgive you. You don't have to worry about it. He's on a long journey. Yeah, he's not around. He's not seeing what you're doing. He's taken a bag of money with him, verse 20, and will come home at the day appointed. Verse 21, with her fair speech, she caused him to yield. And with the flattering of her lips, she forced him. And he goeth after her straightway as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. And look what it says in verse 22, till a dart, a fiery dart, strike through his liver. As a bird hasteneth to the snare and knows not that it is for his life. 
He's begging now, hearken unto me, therefore, O you children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Don't let your heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her past. And here's why. All, all this lust and beauty, look where it leads. She has cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Verse 27, her house is the way to where? To hell. Going down to the chambers of death. And so where did this problem start? Flaming arrows, wrong images and pictures, lust in the heart. Don't lust in your heart for her beauty. And then the fair speeches, the devil speaking through a subtle, seducing woman. More arrows. So fiery darts can be thoughts that are put there by someone else's speech or what they say. And that's what happens. So the devil's busy strategizing and picking just the right arrow for your personality. And he sets it aflame once he gets it going and sends it flying your way. So if you're a depressed person, arrows that promote depression are coming your way. If you're the kind of person that worries about your health and safety all the time, then flaming arrows of sickness, terrorists, burglars, and car accidents are headed your way. And if you're an angry person, someone given that way, when you come into a situation, he is going to hit you with a flaming thought that will cause you to react. He's going to make that situation appear way worse than it is to your mind with those flaming arrows. That's how he works. So what can we do? How do we deal with these flaming darts that are coming to destroy us? Because it is going to happen to all of us. All of us that are Christians have experienced this to one degree or another. I don't care if you've been saved the day. It's already happened. And Peter says, hey, don't think it's strange. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. So it's promised, isn't it? We're in a warfare he says those fiery darts are coming. They have to be quenched. He didn't say they aren't going to come. They have to be quenched by the shield of faith. That's how it works. So what makes the trials we're in fire? It's the onslaught of those flaming thoughts that barrage our minds, right? When you're trusting God for something, that's what makes it tough. Circumstances and the thoughts and these images and thoughts of what are going to happen to you if you continue to trust the Lord. That's when the battle rages and he's attacking us with his schemes and his wiles with thoughts, images and projected outcomes that are not good. Pictures of disaster is what he presents. And I'm saying, do we have a defense against him? And that's when we come into the shield of faith because God has given us a piece of armor. Doesn't it say there that can quench every fiery dart that hits us the shield of faith and that's our only defense against these fire arrows that he hurls at us is our trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of his might that's our shield so in the Old Testament God is many times referred to as a shield to his people and I'm just going to quote some of these out of the Psalms. I'll just quote them to you. But listen how many times when I quote these that the shield, God being our shield and our trust in him are both spoken of together. Psalm 3.3, we sing this song, but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Psalm 28.7, 
The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Psalm 115, 9 to 11. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And now the rest of us, ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Psalm 119, 114. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. And Psalm 144, 1 to 2. Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. My goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer. And he ends verse 2 by saying, God is my shield and he in whom I trust. My shield and the one I trust. So God has carved our shield in the Old Testament. And in our text that we're reading today in Ephesians 6, faith is called our shield. So which is it? Is God our shield? Or do we have faith for our shield? And the answer is yes. What I want us to see is it's primarily, though, about God. What he is, what he promises to be and do. That is the main thing. And we trust in that. Our faith is not our shield. Well, let me qualify that. I say our faith is not our shield, not by itself. Listen to that. Our faith is not our shield by itself, not by itself. What I'm trying to say is we don't have faith in our faith because God is our shield and we trust him to be that. All he promises to do for us, to protect us, to deliver us, to heal us. And our faith in that sense, is our shield as we trust him to be all he says. But God is our shield. Here's why it can say faith is our shield. If we don't trust in the Lord, guess what we don't have? A shield, right? If we don't trust in the Lord, then he isn't our shield because First Peter, it says this, we are kept by the power of God. We are kept by the power of God through faith. So the power of God is what keeps us as we trust him. So listen, however much we are willing to trust God, that is how big our shield will be. As one man said, the bigger your God, the more effective your shield. So I just had somebody the other day was joking with me that their shield seemed like a metal pop bottle cap. Now they were joking. They really were joking. I, I know they were. But for some, really, though, their God in reality is no bigger than that. Their shield, their God is no bigger than that. They're not trusting him to give him any more help and protection than a pop bottle cap would. And why is that? It's because of a lack of knowledge of God's power and his willingness. Not just his power. You have to believe in his willingness to help. But it's limited their faith and limited the size of their shield. So let's think about this. When we talk about faith, is the focus our faith or the God we have faith in? Is our trust or faith praiseworthy? Or what is praiseworthy? The God we trust. So what we need to see is faith is never focused inwardly. It's not, I don't feel like I believe or I feel like I have a lot of faith. Faith is directed towards an object. 
not itself. Do we understand that? Because faith sees God. It's directed out, not looking at itself to see how great it is, how much it has. Can I do this or not do this? No. Faith sees God. It sees his power, his promises, his trustworthiness. That's what faith sees and decides. Because of what I see in him, he is a being I can rely on. That's what faith says. I put my trust in him. Not because I'm looking at my faith, but because I'm looking at him and I see that he is trustworthy. So then the question becomes not, do I have a power within me to make something happen? If I'm positive enough? Now, if I'm positive enough, God will do something for me. Listen, faith is not just being positive. <laughs> you know, the story of this little leaguer, he says, Mom, I think we're going to lose our game today. And she's like, oh, no, son, you've got to be positive. And he's like, okay, well, I'm positive we're going to lose our game today. <laughs> well, look, faith is trust in our great God, our great shield. That's where faith has to be directed. So listen, the blind man comes to Jesus. To show you what I'm saying, he comes to Jesus in Mark 10. When he comes to Jesus, Jesus didn't say to him, do you feel like you have it in you to make something happen? That's not the question he asked the guy. You know what Jesus asked the guy? What do you want me to do for you? He's saying, here I am. What do you want me to do for you? That is the question he asked him. That's significant. Because it takes the focus off of that man and on to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here I am. God Almighty standing here. What do you want me to do for you? And the man's answer was, Lord, that I might receive my sight. I'm relying on you. So we don't need to analyze our faith. We need to analyze the one we have faith in. So faith is not our Savior, is it? <laughs> we don't rely on our faith, do we? We rely on who? We rely on the Lord Jesus. He's the one that is our Savior. He's the one that is our healer. He is the one that is our deliverer. All faith does is connect us to the great God and his power. That's all it does. As one old saint remarked, he said, it's not do I rely enough, but is Jesus Christ great enough and gracious enough for me to rely upon? That's the question we need to ask. Let me say that again. Not do I rely enough, but is Jesus Christ great enough and gracious enough for me to rely upon? And you'll quit looking at yourself and begin to start looking at him. And so how do we do that? How do we look at him to gain trust? It's Romans 10, 17. Faith or trust comes by hearing or reading the Word of God, because that is where we find our Savior, in the Bible. So faith comes by having our spiritual eyes open to see Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty in His power, in His love, in His grace, that He is a great Savior. That's how faith comes, having your eyes open to that. The one that is willing to be our shield and help. And when you see how great His grace is and His power and His help, then placing your trust in him is the natural thing to do. But it's when we get our eyes off of him and onto our faith, our circumstances, or others' opinions, all of those, then we begin to sink. 
Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, is what it says. So when you look at Hebrews 11, Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see that those men and women that are talked about in there, they all knew that what they believed for was certain, not because of anything within themselves, but because of the one who made the promises. That's what gave them faith and certainty. So Noah, we know about Noah, it says he built an ark to save his family. Because, why? He was warned of God. He said, Almighty God warned me about what's getting ready to happen, and I'm willing to take all the abuse from mankind that I don't know what I'm doing. 120 years, I will hold on to that because God Almighty is the one that gave that warning, and I can trust that. Noah said, I can trust that. Not because of anything in himself. And Sarah it said she received strength to conceive Isaac. And go back and read it. You know how she received strength by faith to conceive Isaac? It says because she looked out from herself. It says because she judged God faithful that promised. So she's saying, I can by faith receive strength because I'm looking at him. I'm looking at God and I judge him faithful. She made a judgment on him, not her faith. She looked at God and trusted him, and Moses was willing to forsake the glory and pleasures of Egypt and have Pharaoh seek to kill him. Why? Because he'd seen something. It says he had seen him who was invisible. And when he saw that, then he was able to trust that being. The Lord Jesus Christ is who he saw. And so he's willing to endure everything he did. That's where faith comes from. I don't think so much need to pray for more faith but a clear vision of who our God is. A vision of the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he still, the Lord Jesus Christ still has the power to save, heal, deliver, give power over sin, baptize with the Holy Spirit, help us in time of temptation. He is willing, able, and faithful to come to our aid. But to know that, we have to spend time in prayer and in God's Word to see the beauty and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where faith will come. We need to get back to our first love. God really put that in my heart. We need to get back to our first love, making the Lord Jesus Christ our all in all. Him, all of us, and falling down to worship Him for His great love that was displayed on the cross. You want to have faith? You want to be able to deal with these fiery darts? We need to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and Him. He's the one that promises to heal us, to deliver us. Look at Him. We're going to tell Him you can't do this? But we need to have a knowledge of Him. And that knowledge is a supernatural opening of our eyes by the Holy Spirit. It comes by seeking. You read Proverbs, you've got to seek for that knowledge and wisdom like it is gold. Like it's a treasure in the bottom of the ocean worth millions that you want to get. You'll do anything you have to get it. And do we really, we say we want faith, that's what we'll need to do. It comes from the Word. It comes from the Holy Spirit. That What Brother Hamilton would always pray, that the God would open the eyes of our understanding. And one of the things is that we can see His power. We'll know to trust in Him. And we get a clear vision of that, we'll see that everything has been restored because of that cross. 
because of what our God did, and he is able to bring restoration to us through the power of his Holy Spirit. Then, you've done that when the fiery darts of the wicked ones hit our minds with doubt and depression. We can put up that shield of faith because we'll say God has promised to deliver me from this situation. And we can then say, like Abraham, I am fully persuaded because I know him that what he has promised, he is able and willing to perform. Not just able, he is willing to perform for me. And I am no longer, devil, going to dwell on these thoughts of disaster that you're putting in my mind, that you're bombarding me with. I'm going to think on God's great love and mercy for his people, and I'm one of them. You're not going to get me to doubt that anymore. Amen. It's a sin to doubt that if you've committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're making God a liar. He's saying you put your trust in me, you have, not going to get it, you have everlasting life. And it says, if you won't believe that, you're making him a liar. We need to say, hey, nothing. I've seen the Lord. I know he loves me. He's promised me he does. And nothing is going to separate me from the love of Christ. None of these fiery darts. None of the things you're saying. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says this. This is the confidence that we have in him. Not our faith. This is the confidence that we have in him, the Lord Jesus Christ, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So that's the key. Are we asking according to his will? He says, this is the confidence we can have in him, our great Savior. We ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that, if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, then we know something else. We know that we have present tense, not waiting to get it. We have the petitions that we desired of him. But the point I want to make in that verse is our confidence is where? In him, directed to him, in God and what he said he will do. Trust in him and not our faith. Or how much faith we feel we have because as we've heard before, how much faith do you have to have to do the impossible? What does the Lord say? A mustard seed. It doesn't have to be great faith for great things to happen. It just needs to be a heart that is towards him, that's not walking in sin, and that sees him for who he is. Oh, I, just a little bit of that trust. Oh, you can still have fear there. What time I am afraid, but I've seen him. I'm, I've never done this before. I'm a little shaky, but I think I can trust in him from what I see. And what time I am afraid, I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. I will trust in him because I've seen who he is. And that's the vision we need. So when you've seen that, when thoughts and images of lust hit your mind, ah, you don't have to wilt and give in to those. You can resist them and call on God to make a way of escape because you'll know he promises that he will. No temptation has taken us, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will always make a way of escape if we're willing to look for it. And you'll think, these thoughts just keep coming, these images. Ah, oh, you need to have a little battle going on there in your mind. You control what you think by the power of the Holy Spirit you can. So those lustful darts come your way. Hey, you have to say, I'm not going to receive those. I'm thinking on something else, devil. You're going to have to flee. God promises that you will flee. And I'm telling you, trust me, it works. 
I didn't get saved as a married person. I was 21 years old, unmarried. So here's what you need. I say, would tell anyone, I've got these books at home on this is how you deal with pornography. You know what none of them say? None of them are recommending the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of tongues. And none of them talk much about Matthew 5, about you just have to cut it off. You cut off any images in your mind. You cut off any R-rated movies. You cut off any pornography. And you cut off the second glance in the summer. We got summer coming up, and people tend to take their clothes off, you know. You can't help the one, I wasn't looking, there she is, but you can't help the that one, and we all know what I'm talking about. So we have a part to play, but God, through the Holy Spirit, will allow us to do that. So we do our part with the baptism and a fear of God. Nothing wrong with that. Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you continue to lust after a woman, you'd be better off to pull your eyeball out, because if you do, you will perish in hell. That ought to put a little fear in a young man, or an old man, or a woman. Whoever's got a lust problem, that's serious. So here's what we do. We need God's power to execute Philippians 4.8. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, what does he say? Think on these things, not on the images the devil gives you. That's a command. It's not a suggestion from the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4.8. So tell me, answer this. How can we obey the command to think right thoughts and entertain the fiery darts of the wicked one at the same time? How can we do that? How can we think on what is pure and be lusting at the same time? How can we think on what is lovely and a good report and think resentful, unforgiving thoughts about our brother and sister? How does that work? And I'm talking to myself, believe me. So how can we think about cheating somebody in a business deal and be thinking about things that are honest? And we can keep the list going on. But listen, to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one and think right thoughts, as I said, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're back to where this whole warfare section begins in verse 10, we have to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might to be able to use and execute this armor to put the shield of faith up. So it's only as we raise that shield of faith, and we'll only do that if we trust that God is able and willing to do what he has promised. And I mean, both are important. You have to believe he's able, but you also have to believe that for you, he is willing. Very critical. And I think that is where we have begun to waver. So Mark chapter 9. We all know the story. The man with the epileptic boy brings his son to be healed by Jesus. But he gets there, and guess what? Jesus isn't there. Where is he? Well, he's up on the mountain being transfigured. So he tells his disciples what he wants. His disciples are down there, at least nine of them. Three of them went up with him on the mountain. And he says, hey, I need to have my boy delivered from this, this demon. I need you to help me. And those guys probably said, hey, we can take care of you. You know, He gave us authority to cast out demons back in chapter 6. If you read Mark 6, he did. He gave them authority to cast out spirits. And they're like, it worked pretty well for us. 
So they're confident. I'm sure they were confident they could deliver that boy. But guess what? When they started rebuking and commanding that spirit, what happened? Nothing. Their faith was failing. So at one point, they all got faith, the man and the disciples, right? They all got faith. But then when it didn't work and he couldn't cast that spirits out, something's, something's up there. And I think that's when a fiery dart started hitting that man's mind. He's probably having thoughts and they're probably like he's thinking them that this whole Jesus thing doesn't work. The reports I heard about casting out spirits aren't true. You know, his disciples were so confident they could deliver my boy, but when they rebuked and commanded, nothing. That's probably what he started thinking. Those probably are the fiery darts that started coming in his mind. So about that time when nothing happens with that boy, he's no better. Faith hasn't worked in. Jesus comes down from the mountain and he sees an uproar. He asks, like, what's up here? What's going on? And the man says, well, look, I brought my son. I wanted you to be the one to heal him, right? But when you weren't here, I asked your disciples to cast the demon out of my boy, but they could not. Jesus listens, and then he commands the boy to be brought to him. And when he's brought to Jesus, the boy right then has another seizure. The spirit begins to manifest. And so instead of dealing with that spirit right then, what does Jesus do? He begins to ask the man questions. How long has it been since this spirit has been in that boy? And guess what? The darts are really flying now, I would imagine, in that man's mind. He's like, they couldn't do anything, and now Jesus is here, and my son's having another seizure right in front of him, and apparently he can't do anything about it, and all he's doing is asking me questions. And I guarantee you the devil probably had him overwhelmed with thoughts of doubt fiery darts, and the man finally blurts out, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So at this point, the man is questioning Jesus' willingness and power. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And what was the Lord's answer to him? If I can do anything, probably wanted to say to that guy, if you could have seen me in my glory on that mountain where I just was, you would not have to ask that. You'd have no trouble trusting me. You would know that all things are possible to just a small amount of trust in my great power and love. But the man is desperate, isn't he? He's struggling. Lord, I do believe. He's probably thinking, I came here believing. I came here with confidence that you were the answer. But when your disciples failed, and you haven't helped me yet, right? You still haven't helped me. I'm struggling in my mind. I got these doubts coming. The devil's probably barraging him. It's filled with doubt. And he says, please help me. I do believe. Please help mine unbelief. And I think that's where a lot of us are, are right now, if we're honest. So we started off with confidence. The faith message, throw our Bibles in the air, but over time, it seems like it doesn't work like we heard it would. We believe, we want to trust the Lord, but the fiery dart of doubts have found a lodging place. I think that's the case. Power and willingness, we have to have both to have faith and to hold up our shield when those fiery darts come. So what's the answer? And I would say we can learn something from this story. We can ask God to help us to hold up that shield of faith, can we? 
Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Have you ever been there in a trial? I have. I have where that thing goes on for days and days and days, and it's looking really bad, and the darts are flying. You want to trust the Lord, it is getting hard, and that's when you've got to cry out, Lord, I believe. Just help me. I want to hold on to you. I want to trust you. Help mine unbelief. And the other thing I think we need to do is ask him to anoint our shield with the oil of the Holy Spirit to quench the fiery darts. And how is that going to happen? What does it say in Revelations 3? He says, you need to have your eyes anointed with eye salve so that you can see. And I'm saying we need that eye salve, that revelation, that anointing of the Holy Spirit to give us a revelation of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. That we don't have to be afraid to trust him. That how he was in the Bible, he still is today. He's a living Savior with the same power, the same healing compassion that he had in the Bible. He's not going to let us down if we put our trust in him. We need to see that. God, anoint my eyes with high eye salve so that I can see. And we need to say, hey, take me by the hand. Lead me up to that mount of transfiguration so that I can see your power and glory. I can see you like Moses did. Because it comes through the word. What is that mountain? It's his word. And we behold the glory of the Lord in his word and by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's how we see. It's a revelation that has to happen. But it needs to happen. And then we'll trust in the promises of the Bible because we see the God who made the promises. Right? We'll trust in the power of God to deliver us from temptation because then we'll see his willingness to come to our aid and to give us grace and help in time of need. That's Hebrews 4. Have you never had to use that? That'd be a good thing for you guys to use. All these thoughts are coming in my mind and they seem like they're overwhelming me and I feel like I'm really struggling. God, please come and give me grace and help and he will make a way of escape. He will. If we trust him for that. Our shield of trust in Almighty God, anointed with oil of the Holy Spirit, it will quench every fiery satanic dart that is shot our way. And you know why? We will be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and in the knowledge of his love and concern for us. Amen? Amen. So when we'll stand. We'll stand then when the battle rages because of our faith in God who is our shield. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you'll help us all just, Lord Jesus, just to see who you are, God. I just ask, Father, you'll give us a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, his power, his majesty, his willingness to come and help us that he is not unwilling. We can kneel before him like the leper, and Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And we can hear his words say to us like he said to him, I am willing, be thou clean. And I just ask you, Lord, that you'll help us to see that our trust is in you, the great God. And we don't have to be afraid to trust you. You will be there for us, and that we can quench all the fiery darts, the temptations, the doubts, the unforgiveness, everything that the devil throws our way, we can resist and overcome by our faith in you, our trust in you, our great God and Savior. And I just ask that you'll make that real for all of us, Lord, 
all of us that we can stand in the evil day by trusting in you, putting our complete hope and trust and lives in your hands. And I thank you that you'll do that for us here in Jesus' name. Amen.